From Nashville, Tennessee, Southwestern Family of Companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, we share insights and inspiration for movers and shakers in the world of business. Our goal is to help you increase your self-discipline, overcome procrastination, and help you to take action on all the things that really matter. Holy moly, we have a powerful interview and a big-time guest today. Daniel Pink is on the show, author of To Sell is Human. We're going to talk about that. We're also talking about his brand new book. It is called When, uh, which is which is interesting, I think, and powerful. It's all about the, the scientific secrets of perfect timing. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about both of those. And at the end, we're going to do a debrief here where I'm going to share with you these five um, unexpected ways to double your sales. So these are sort of things that the data and the science that uh, Pink Daniel Pink has looked at has sort of changed and altered a little bit and challenged, just let's say challenged some of the classic assumptions of what sales is and what effective sales looks like and what sales, what you will need to be in the next generation to be an effective salesperson. And so it's really interesting, dynamic stuff. So I will highlight for you my five big takeaways from the interview and turn those into some things that you can do to help you uh, double your sales. And uh, we also have something coming up for you here just in a minute for how to double your referrals. Right after that, we will get started just after this message. This episode is sponsored by Southwestern Coaching. Southwestern Coaching has helped over 11,000 people increase their incomes by over 25% on average. As a successful salesperson, you know the importance of increasing your sales, but sometimes you might just need a little extra push and accountability to meet your goals and grow your business. Southwestern Coaching will help you increase your income through one-on-one sales and leadership coaching tailored specifically to your needs. Together, we will elevate sales. To schedule your free one-on-one business action planning session with a Southwestern coach, go to www.southwesternconsulting.com forward slash action catalyst. I am super honored and excited to introduce to you uh, Daniel Pink. If you have not heard of him, he uh, is a graduate, has a law degree actually from Yale Law School. He's a behavioral scientist. He, he is the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of several books. Uh, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us in 2009, definitely one of the biggest ones. Um, his, and then he wrote the book, part of what we're going to talk about today, To Sell as Human, came out in 2012. And he has a brand new book that is just coming out, which we're also going to highlight and, and feature and talk about as well, um, called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which uh, just came out January 9th. So if you're listening to this live, that was yesterday. So we definitely want to encourage you to go buy that book. And uh, anyways, Daniel, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So um, I wanted to start off talking a little bit about To Sell as Human, since our, you know, our team at Southwestern Consulting really focuses in on the sales space. Uh, we are actually in the process of writing our next book, where we hope to somewhat, uh, in some ways pick up on some of the research that you started there and maybe continue the conversation. But one of the big catchphrases, I think, uh, from your book was, we're all in sales now. And um, you even describe about how you came to that conclusion, you yourself being in sales. So can you just talk a little bit about that? How do you figure, how did you, how did you come to that? And, and what's, you know, some of the data behind that, that premise? Yeah. So um, when you look at um, how people actually 
spend their time at work, you realize that no matter what their job title is, a huge portion of what they're doing every day is selling. Now, what we did is we put together a survey of about 7,000 full-time workers in the U.S., and we found that people are spending 40% of their time persuading, convincing, cajoling, um, essentially selling. Now, they're not necessarily selling a Winnebago or selling consulting services or selling encyclopedias or selling kitchen appliances, but uh, what they are doing is they are a boss trying to get their employees to do something different or do something in a different way. That's selling. Uh, they are employees trying to get their boss to stop doing something stupid. That's selling. <laughs> you're at a meeting and you're trying to get someone to see their point of view. That's selling. They're working on a project. They're trying to get that talented person down the hall to work on their project rather than another project. They're selling. And so um, when you actually look at the ground truth of what people do day-to-day on the job, um, we are spending a huge portion of time selling, even though the majority of us do not have that word sales or selling in our job title or job description. Mm. That's so huge. Something that you now you, – you refer to that as non-sales selling, people who are persuading and convincing, but they're not yeah. like – And the cash register is not ringing. So. Yeah, and the cash register is not ringing. Yeah, non-sales selling is basically, you know, you're, you're, you're selling, but the cash register is not ringing. And the, and the denomination – of the transaction isn't dollars or euros or rubles, but hmm. is time, effort, attention, energy, zeal, commitment, those kinds of things. Right. And, and one of the things that I love that you introduced, which is a part of what you know, a lot of our listeners know, the direction that we're heading with our next book, part of the currency there is trust, just in general, no matter what the exchange or the medium is, a big part of the currency is trust. No question. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I remember trust is essential on so many different domains and so many different aspects of business. But I mean, it, you know, it almost goes without saying, but I'll say it, you know, if, if, if someone doesn't trust you, they're not going to buy from you, whether they're buying a car or whether they're buying an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, when know, I mentioned, you know, we're hoping to kind of build upon some of the research and that the premise that you laid out there is, is just talking about how it's it's like at the end of the day the trust is more important than the transaction. If you if you earn the person's trust, eventually you earn the sale. And um, one of the things I just reread I just reread the book um, just to kind of get a refresher because it's it's been out for a few years, but but was just the the immersion of uh, the education field and the medical field and how many people are moving in that. Sure. Those are all very much sales um, and entrepreneurship. Um, but one of the things you also introduce in the book is you said it used to be caveat emptor, buyer beware, but now you're saying the world has changed to something else. And I think even though your book's been out for a few years, I still think salespeople don't always fully understand the impacts of of this finding and that, that you presented. So can you highlight it's not caveat emptor, but now it's what and why? It's uh, well, we've gone from a world of buyer beware to a world now of seller beware. Now, how this happened is extraordinarily important, and it's a, it's a big deal. And, I, and I'm with you. I, I feel like people haven't fully grokked how important this is. So here's how to, here's how to understand it. Most of what we know about sales, whether you're selling again, whether it's non-sales selling, selling an idea concept, or whether you're selling a Winnebago, most of what we know about sales has come from a world of information asymmetry where the seller always had more information than the buyer. When the seller has more information than the buyer, the seller has the edge. 
uh, worse, the seller can take the low road. The seller can rip you off, right? Information asymmetry is why we have this principle of buyer beware. Buyers have to beware because the seller has an edge. And, and this is true from the very first commercial transaction in human history, you know, whatever it was, some guy selling a goat to someone else for shells or something like that. The guy selling the goat knew a lot more about the goat than the guy buying the goat. So, right. And that, that's the information asymmetry has defined what sales is for a very long time. However, in the last 10 years, everything's turned upside down. Is that less and less and less and less and less do we live in a world of information asymmetry? We live in a world of, of much greater information parity, where the buyer of something can actually find out a huge amount of information, sometimes as much of the, often as much as the seller, sometimes more than the seller. Okay, that's a huge deal. And you see this in, you know, basically buying a car. Used to be if you bought a car, the car dealer would know a lot more about cars, a lot more about Toyotas, a lot more about Toyota Camrys than you ever could. Buyer beware. Now you can go into that Toyota dealership, and, and you know almost as much, sometimes more, than that car salesman knows about cars, Toyotas, and, and Camrys. So the point of all this is that a world of information asymmetry is a world of buyer beware, but a world of information parity is a world of seller beware. It used to be that buyers had not much information, not many choices, and no way to talk back. Buyer beware. Now we're in a world where buyers have lots of information, lots of choices, and all kinds of ways to talk back. That's a world of seller beware. And this is as huge a change in business as anything we have uh, had to confront. It is one of, to me, one of the biggest cultural and economic changes in the world of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, now they can spout off to all their social media friends and they walk in, you know, I just bought a car. And so it was like I had already done all the research before walking in and, and you're holding it and and on the in on the lot i remember i was talking with a salesperson and you know they mentioned the price and i literally right in front of his face pulled out my phone and just like just pulled up uh auto trader you know just that's like right the, there and and absolutely absolutely that's the way the world works now and sales people mm-hmm. who don't adjust to that are going to be in a world of hurt yeah so um there in the book, and I want to shift to talking to your new book in, in just a second, but you talk about, you know, the old ABCs of selling and sort of the classic, you know, salesy stuff, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And right. then you introduce the new ABCs of selling, which I'm not going to tell you, you, those of you that are listening, we're going to talk about one right now. The first one uh, the, of the ABC is, a, is attunement. Um, and I think there's a lot of fascinating data and research and science that came out of the work that you were do- doing there. So first of all, uh, you know, for those of us that are, are low SAT scores um, and, uh, you know, not, not good Scrabble players, what, what, is, what is attunement and what does that mean? And then how does, how does that apply to salespeople? Right. So attunement is perspective taking. It's basically can you get out of your own head and see things from someone else's point of view? That's all that it is. Now, it ends up being enormously important in any kind of sales and persuasion. Why? Because today we have, whether we're a boss, whether we're a teacher, whether we're a salesperson, we have very little ability to force other people to do things. We have very little coercive power. So when we lack that kind of power, we need almost the flip side of that, which is can you get out of your own head, see things from someone else's point of view, find common ground. 
Um, and this ends up being one of the most profoundly important elements of sales in a world of seller beware. Um, and it's something that human beings, you know, are not often not that great at. Uh, fortunately, we're not inherently great at it. Fortunately, we can learn how to be a lot better at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, is it, is it right to call it empathy? Is that, is that part of it? Empathy, uh, sort of. I mean, empathy is related to perspective taking, but perspective taking is a little bit more hard headed than empathy. It's basically, um, with empathy, you're sort of understanding how somebody is feeling. But actually, there's some interesting research showing that in, in many kinds of sales, just understanding what they're thinking is as important, if not more so. Um, so uh, it's particularly true in negotiation, that uh, there's some interesting research showing that if you direct people in negotiation to focus on the other side's feelings and, the, and, one, and other people to focus on the other side's thoughts and interests, that in general, the people focused on the thoughts and interests do better than the folks who are focused on the emotions and feelings. Uh, and this and is what a huge negotiating tip. Yeah, I mean, again, what you want, I mean, what you want is you want to get both channels. You want to get the thinking channel and the emotional channel. But the, the reality of our lives is that we have very, very heavy loads on our brains. And so if you're negotiating in real time, you're trying to remember what the terms are, you're trying to remember what your objectives are, you're trying to remember a whole variety of facts, um, you're, you're, you're making decisions on the fly, it's very hard for us to keep everything in our head. And so getting, then you say, oh, you have to have the emotional channel and the thoughts and interest channel. That's sometimes hard for us to do. So if you're overloaded, focus on the thoughts and focus on the interest. The other thing about that is that there's some good evidence showing that that is the key to in just overall persuading inside of a company, say, that's the key to persuading up. Um, That when you persuade up, uh, you're much better off focusing on the other person's thoughts and interests than you are in the feelings and emotions. Gosh, that is so good. And it's so true. I mean, when you're talking to CEOs, it's like, they don't care about your feelings. Show me the data. Like, show, yeah, like, you let's should, talk about. You shouldn't, necessarily, the, you shouldn't necessarily care about their feelings. You shouldn't necessarily say, oh, is she being, you know, is the CEO, is she being, is she angry right now? Is she, is she missed right now? I mean, my view in terms of persuading, selling to, people higher in the organization is, it is my own view, I don't have data to support this, but is that bosses always put people into two categories, you know, the people who report to them into two categories, people who make my life easier, people who make my life harder. And you want to be in that first category of people who make the boss's life easier. Wow. That's an interesting perspective. Uh, my, uh, yeah. So one one last thing before we leave this. So again, getting back into the data, when you talk about entunement, uh, the uh, part of what we're hoping to do, which I think is again very much what you did, and uh, is is this idea of turning turning a lot of the misconceptions that people have about sales and turning them upside down or inside out or shifting them a little bit. And one of the common common things is, oh, you know, if you're going to be great in sales, you got to be an extrovert. You got to be you got a gift of gab. It's all about extrovert and all that sort of stuff. And there's, you have some very clear uh, analysis that you present. Can you talk about how extroverts and introverts, uh, how they, they perform in sales? Yeah, there's a, very good, there's a very good study out of the University of Pennsylvania, and here's what they did. They went to a large company, large software company. The large software company had a large sales force. They measured the introversion, extra level, the extroversion levels of the people in the sales force. Then the sales reps went out and sold software. So we know who the introverts are, we know who the extroverts are, we know how much every person sold. 
here's what they concluded, that strong introverts were terrible at sales. Okay? I don't think that's a big surprise. Uh, but I think the bigger surprise is that strong extroverts were also terrible at sales. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that what's scary about that, as you say, is like it's a myth that, you know, that we, we tend to think that the people who do the best are these strong extroverts. The data don't bear that out. What the data show is that the people who do the best are people who are ambiverts, ambiverts, like ambidextrous. All right. This is, and one of the things that's gone on is that we've gotten introversion and extroversion wrong. We think of it as binary, as off or on, as I or E, when in fact it's a spectrum. And what the research shows very clearly is that the people who do the best at sales are neither strongly introverted nor strongly extroverted. They're in the middle. They are ambiverts. And if we go back to this idea of being ambidextrous, think of it that way. They can use their left hand. They can use their right hand. What does this mean in terms of attunement? It means they know when to speak up and they know when to shut up. They know when to push. They know when to hold back. And so, as you say, this idea that strong extroverts are great at sales is flatly wrong. There's no evidence of that. In fact, there's evidence of the contrary. But it doesn't mean the strong introverts are better. They're actually a little worse. The people who do the best are people who are in the middle, ambiverts. And the best news of all is that most of us are ambiverts. Most of us are neither very strong introverts nor very strong extroverts. We're in the middle. Big, big stuff. Um, again, we'll talk about what the B and the C is in the extended interview. Um, but I want to shift the conversation right now to your new book, which I love. And, and I'll tell you that are listening why. So the book is called When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. I cannot wait to read this because I know your, your data-driven brain and your behavioral science and all the background. Um, so my first question, though, for you is not related to the content of the book, is as I calculate, it's been roughly six years since your last book came out to win this one. So why, knowing that this is a book about timing, why this book and why right now? Yeah, that's a great question, actually, Rory. Uh, it's been it's it's been five years, um, and and the reason I guess is that um, there's no great strategic reason. The reason really is that uh, writing a book is a big, as you know, is a big undertaking. You have to be, you have to have something that you really love working on, that's something that you want to live with for many, 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 many years, if not the rest of your life. And I actually wrote and threw away a couple of book proposals uh, in that time because I didn't feel like the ideas were big enough, bold enough, interesting enough. Um, but I finally came around to this idea, and it, and and the I, and the main reason of it, the main reason that I wanted to write this book, no joke, is that I wanted to read it. I realized that I was making all kinds of when decisions in my own my own life, everything from when should I exercise during the day, when should I do in the day my most important work, um, those kinds of daily when decisions, but also you know yearly when decisions. Why why does do a lot of people's well being droop around midlife? Uh, why do beginnings matter? How can I make better endings of of experiences? And um, and so I realized that I was making these when decisions in a really haphazard way. Uh, but it turns out there's this very very complicated but rich and deep body of science um, on timing, from economics to social psychology to a lot of work in medicine and biology uh, that can allow us to make systematically better when decisions in our life. And so. I found from doing the research and writing this book that I'm now making far, far, far better win decisions in my own life. Wow. 
Okay, so I'm going to give you the challenge of the TED Talk, uh, which I know you've been there before. The, you know, the hardest thing is to take all these big ideas and years worth of research, and it's like to boil it down to like one sentence. So if 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 you had to kind of say this was the pre- this after all of that, this is the main premise, or this was the big realization, or this was the big takeaway that is sort of the through line of everything in the book. Do you what would you say that is? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question too. So uh, I think the big the big idea here is the following: that we tend, when we make decisions about our performance, about our lives, about our own happiness, we tend to focus on what should we do, how should we do it, who should we do it with, and we make these questions of when mm. secondary questions. Uh, they're sort of sitting at the kids' table, and what what I found in doing the research is that when belongs at the grown-up table. That these questions of when matter significantly. They matter on mm. how we perform in our jobs. They matter on how happy we are with our lives. Uh, they matter in almost every dimension of, of, of what we do. And so if we start taking these questions of when as seriously as so we take questions of what and who and how, I think people are going to live better lives and work a little bit smarter. Interesting. So, so I guess, so why do you, why do you, why, why do you, why do you say that? Is it, is it because, like, is it related to the quality of the decision is determined by when you actually evaluate it or because there's, oh, there all, there's, there's so many, there's so many different there's, dimensions. There's so many, there's so many different dimensions of that. Let me give you a couple of just like, you know, let's be really practical and tactical for your, your listeners here. So for instance, um, having studied this subject, I would never allow anybody in my family to willingly go into a hospital in the afternoon versus the morning. If you Whoa. look at what happens in, in hospitals in the afternoon, here's what happens. Doctors make four times as many anesthesia errors at 3 p.m. as they do at 9 a.m. Incidence of hand washing declines dramatically in the afternoon compared with the mornings. Uh, surger, uh, far higher number of surgical errors in the afternoon than in the morning. You look at something like colonoscopies, and doctors find half as many polyps in the same population in the afternoon exams as they do in the morning exam. There's a rapid deterioration in performance in hospitals in the afternoon. So that's one very specific, very practical takeaway on that. Uh, another really practical wow. takeaway is that, is that we don't, uh, uh, when we think about breaks, okay, we, the science of breaks is powerful. And what it shows us very clearly is that we need to start treating breaks with much greater seriousness. I'm talking about breaks during the day. Uh, the way I look at it is this, that remember 15 years ago, somebody who didn't sleep, who pulled all-nighters, who came into the office saying, oh, I only got two hours of sleep last night, that person we would look at as a hero. Uh, that person was so dedicated, so committed. And now that we understand the science of sleep, we say, no, that person's an idiot. That person is hurting his own performance. He's hurting other people's performance. The science of breaks is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. And what it shows us is that we need to start thinking of breaks as part of our performance rather than a deviation of performance. And a very specific practical thing mm. people can do on that front is to make a break list. Write down the two or three breaks you're going to take during the day. Write it down, schedule it, and treat it with the seriousness with which you uh, schedule meetings. Uh, we also know a lot more about breaks. We know that you should take that. So how? Taking a, taking a break with somebody is more is better than taking without somebody with a, with a friend. 
um, uh, uh, going outside is better than being inside, that moving is better than being stationary, that being fully detached is better than being only partly detached. And how long? Uh, it depends. Um, you know, I think that, you know, we can't, there, there's no magic number to that, unfortunately. I wish that there were. Um, gotcha. so the, basically, the research shows that something is better than nothing. So if you can get like a 15-minute break, 20-minute break, a couple times a day, you're going to perform at a higher level. So thinking about the when part of it, is it, you know, and, and kind of connecting that back to your, your hospital example, which is, which is compelling and terrifying. Alarming. Alarming. Um, it, alarming. <laughs> uh, is, is that because, is, is, it, is it the time of day that really matters, or is it the number, the, how long someone's been working? In other words, you know, do you think this that you may not Great question. have looked no, I, I, yeah. so I, I, if you if you start both. started at one p.m. in the afternoon is and you make a mistake, are you as likely to make a mistake at four as, or is it just the people who started at eight a.m. are making the mistakes at four? That's a great question. Um, it ends up being both, but um, one of the things. Let's go back to hand washing for, for for an example. One of the things that can that can kick hand washing back up in the afternoon is taking breaks, um, and so. Um, so part of it is it's, it's unclear exactly what's causing all of this, but one of the remedies seems to be giving people a break. So, for instance, there's some interesting research out of Denmark showing that kids score systematically lower on standardized tests when they take them in the afternoon versus the morning. And But the, a good remedy for that is giving kids a 20- to 30-minute break before they take the test. So part of it is basically our circadian rhythms, diurnal variations, that make the, the afternoon a precarious time in general. And part of it, as you suggest, Rory, is just simply people being out of task for a long time uh, and losing some of their vigilance. And it's very hard to disentangle mm-hmm. those two. Yes. Well, I, um, uh, so I have one other last little question here. And uh, before, before we do that, of course, we're going to have the extended interview. But uh, the book's called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, coming out January 9th. So... Depending on when you're listening to this book, it's probably out now. So go get it. Go buy it. Um, where do you want people to go, Daniel, to connect with you or check out the book? Or I think you just come to my website, which is danielpink.com, D-A-N-I-E-L-P-I-N-K, danielpink.com. Everything, all things pink, are found there. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and then last little question here. On the topic of self-discipline and timing, do you feel like you personally are seeing data that would suggest that you're more likely to do your tax return, make the sales call, do the workout, uh, you know, balance your finances early in the day than later in the day? Or do you, is that kind of inconclusive or not? You, have you not looked at anything enough to, to be able to even address it? Yeah, no, I, I can't address it. And, and again, some of it depends. So, for instance, what we have are, it's very similar to what we were talking about with uh, introversion, extroversion. So some of us are larks. That is, we rise relatively early. We peak during the early part of the day and then wear out a little bit. Others of us are out. That is, we take a longer, we wake up a little bit later and we reach our peak later in the day. Um, what the research shows is that most of us are in between. Most of us are neither larks nor owls, but third birds, right in between. Hmm. For people who are larks and for people who are third birds, 
you're generally better off doing your heads down focused analytic work in the morning. That seems very, very clear to me. Um, and save your, uh, some of your mundane work for the early afternoon, which is often a trough for people. And then maybe some of your more creative work for the rebound, which often occurs around four or five. So typically the pattern of the day is a peak, a trough, and a rebound. Um, what's interesting is that the people who are owls, and, and there are about one out of five of us are strong owls. For people who are owls, the pattern goes the reverse. So you basically have a recovery, trough, and peak. So they're often better off doing their heads-down analytic work, the tax returns, whatever, um, you know, maybe beginning at 4 or 5 in the afternoon. But, again, for most of us, um, it's um, you're better off doing your heads-down analytic work uh, in the morning, clearing the decks, doing what Cal Newport calls your deep work then, and then pushing everything else to later in the day. And is there a category of people that are like me that have – an eight-month home who has been sick and <laughs> you're up all night. And I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure what that category is called. But, uh, folks, you're listening to Daniel Peak. The book's called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Uh, I will share with you more about how to get in touch with him and all of that. Um, but for now, uh, Daniel, thank you so much, man, just for your work and your, your science and your data and your objective, uh, creative but objective empirical view on the world. Uh, you constantly are pushing us to think differently. Thanks, Roy. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Always so interesting and scientific and data-driven, which is one of the reasons I like reading Daniel Pink. By the way, his Twitter handle is at Daniel Pink. So tweet him, say hello, let him know that you're listening. Uh, that kind of stuff is, helps, us, helps us get great, high-quality guests like him to come on the show uh, and people see and know that other people are listening. So what we're going to talk about here is just basically a, a mental highlighter of what I, I took away from that conversation about five unexpected ways to double your sales. And these are all unexpected, and, and they are unexpected findings from his research that I want to warn you up front, some of this may go in the fly in the face a little bit of what you've heard uh, about sales in the past, or it might even, you know, kind of challenge just some of your own thoughts about selling. Um, of course, we're talking to people who are in direct sales and, uh, you know, you know, commission and making the cash register ring, as he said, and also people who are in non-sales selling, which as we, we know, um, the vast majority of people spend at least 40% of their time in non-sales selling, as he describes it. So these are five unexpected ways to double your sales. These are unexpected findings, things that were surprising to me that I think are worth highlighting here as salient points so that you can take action on them in the theme of the Action Catalyst podcast. Five unexpected ways to double your sales. Number one, seller beware. Seller beware. This idea of information um, asymmetry where it used to be the sellers had all the information. Now, the reason I wanted to highlight this is because on the one hand, this is kind of a duh. It's obvious, right? We go, well, yeah, the world of internet, if you're buying a car, most of us have looked online and we're making that decision. But the part that I don't really feel that we have gra we haven't experienced the full gravitas of of the impact is on the social element here where it's not just who has the information but it's also who who controls the like the communication outward and that social media is 
has changed the dynamic in a good way. And I am so thankful for it. I think it's fantastic because I think that social media gives a chance for people to voice and express concerns about unethical sales practices, which weeds those people out and it essentially cleans up the industry. It, it, it reinforces better practices and better people, but it is seller beware. You have to know, right? Every single sales presentation you are in, listen to this. Think about this for a second. You maybe have never had this thought. They could be recording you. You could be on video. You could be getting audio recorded on their phone. Um, they they can be recording you, right? And what does that mean? What if you have a little lie? What if you have a little smidgen of the truth? What if you hold back a little piece of, of information that you know they need to have? Um, that's what intellectual dishonesty is, by the way. That's a term that we're going to be writing about in the next book. Intellectual dishonesty is, it's not lying. It's just withholding something intentionally that you know would influence somebody's decision, um, right? And and that is, you know, anyways, if you're doing that stuff, it can be caught on camera. I mean, look at the airline companies. We had all these things, you know, several months ago now, but with uh, the, the way they were treating their customers got caught on camera. Seller beware. The customer has the power now. They have the influence. And if you don't treat people right, it used to be you should treat people right because it was the right thing. It still is that way. But now if you don't treat people right, the whole world's going to know about it. And that's going to have bigger impacts than just your own conscience. So seller beware. And I, like I said, I love that that is the way it is. I think that level of, of transparency will only clean up the industry. It will promote servant selling, which is what we talk about and we preach and we believe in and we love. Um, I think it's huge. So seller beware. Number two, unexpected. Sell to thoughts, not just to feelings particularly in negotiations, right? We've always been taught that selling is a transference of emotion, which I believe is still true. There's not anything he's saying that is not true there. But when you're getting into a negotiation stage or when you're particularly when you're if you're in non-sales selling and you're trying to influence leadership, if you're trying to influence people above you, right? It's not about how are you feeling. You it, they're not interested in the discussion about your feelings. And I'll raise my hand and say, man, I have probably the worst proponent of this bringing too much emotion and too much feeling into business conversations. Uh, that is something that I've really been working on because it's just, I mean, he hit it square on the head. It's like the people up, they don't really care, right? It's its its just, it's not that they don't care, but its it's more about thoughts and facts and logics and detail and data. And so- you know, yeah, you know, getting people excited and things and, 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 and having enthusiasm is a core part of selling. But when you're getting into the negotiation stage or when you're trying to create change, um, you need to be thinking about logic and you need to be thinking about what are they thinking and, and understanding and asking questions about that. And that's a little bit different, right? That's different from how it was. But again, here, here's some, some data to sort of look at, which is interesting. Number three, be adaptable be adaptable. Specifically, what I'm talking about here is the whole extrovert-introvert conversation. And he kind of breezed through this quickly, which is one of the reasons why we do this little section at the end of the show is to make sure and capture some of these key things if for nothing else for my own benefit, um, but also for yours, hopefully, as, as I'm learning along here with you, is that you know we used to think as of extroversion as binary. It was either an on or off switch. Now it's more like a dial, 
It's more like you're turning it up and turning it down. And it's not the people who are highly extroverted or highly introverted that those, those both are not the top producers as, you know, at least according to this, this research they're looking at. And I would just say from my own observation, from that of, you know, us coaching 9,000 people and our internal team here that, um, you know, I would, I would, I would have to say that's true, right? There's plenty of people who all, they talk way too much. They are too social. They're too cheesy about, you know, you know, oh, I see you got a fish there on your wall. You love fishing? You know, like some of that is necessary and, and useful and it creates rapport, some of it, but too much of it is over the top, right? So it's about being adaptable and learning to adjust that dial. Um, and I think I think that is a valuable insight and somewhat unexpected for most people, Um if you're an introvert, doesn't you know? Just it, that can be working in your favor. And uh, if you're an extrovert, you need to be careful. Now, the extremes is you know not where we really want to be. We want to be adaptable. So that was number three. Number four, this came from his new book. Uh, is do your prospecting in the morning. Do your cold calling in the morning. Right. He was talking about now. Obviously, I think there's more to that conversation. We didn't get into the full detail because the book isn't out yet, or I haven't gotten it yet. I haven't read it. Um, the, but this idea about the doctor, I mean, that was crazy. The idea that, that, that there's an exponential increase in the number of mistakes in the afternoon versus in the morning. I mean, that is, is crazy. Whether you believe in the science of it or not, you know, some of this is like classic Brian Tracy, eat that frog, like do the hardest thing first thing in the morning. And if you're in sales, do the prospecting first thing in the morning, get, get the, build the pipeline, make the new contacts. You'll always be able to work the referrals and, 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 you know, do the warm follow-up and all that sort of stuff. You won't have a hard time getting yourself to do that later. So when you're sharp and you're energized, do it and 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 make that a part of your schedule and a part of your routine. So I thought that was huge. That one's probably not so unexpected, but I think the part that is a little bit unexpected there is just having some of the science and data there to back it up. Um and then also, you know, perhaps the power of a break, right? So if you haven't been prospecting in the morning, maybe take a short break before so that when you when you sit down to do your golden hour, that's what we call it at Southwestern Consulting, is at least one hour every day that is protected for fresh prospecting. So we when we coach our coaching clients, our sales coaching clients, we coach them on you got to have at least this one golden hour where you are prospecting. That's like take your bathroom break before that, so that you're not interrupted. You, that you, that you, when you are you're, you don't have the the urge to take a break after because you're you're prospect that's your golden hour it's protected time, um, so you know maybe take a quick break and then come back ready to hit it hard, and I think you know some of the science there is is a little bit unexpected although doing the things you don't want to do going after what you know you should do that you don't feel like doing that first kind of makes common sense as well, so that's number four number five, and this is comes back the way he said it was uh, perspective taking. The word was attunement. And I thought it was interesting. I've wanted to ask him this question for a couple of years and it was awesome to get to ask him directly is, is that the same thing as empathy? Which he said, not really. That's kind of going back to that thoughts and feelings conversation. So I thought that was interesting. I, I expected him to say, yeah, that's empathy. But that's not really what he said. What he said was, no, there's a, there's a distinct difference there, which is taking on the other person's perspective. 
like literally putting yourself in their shoes. And the reason why I save this for last is because this is the essence, I think, of servant selling. It's getting outside of yourself, putting yourself in their shoes, and and thinking about if you were them, what information would you want to know? If you were them, what would be the right decision? Because you do have the benefit of expertise and knowledge and 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 experience. Um, and but but try to get outside of the of yourself of just thinking about my sale, my commission, my quota, my whatever, and get into their shoes and think about what it would be like to be them. Take on their perspective process this decision from their point of view, from from their point of interest. And if you can do that, even if you don't believe in servant selling, even if you don't believe in the idea that you should you should focus on trust and that that really the sale is about earning trust and believing that if you if you earn somebody's trust, eventually you'll earn the sale. And even if you even if you lose the the short term transaction, which you won't, right? Very often you won't. But even if you did, you would make it up later through referrals and repeat business, and later they would buy and positive and this sort of abundance mentality that is going to come back to you. That is a different way of thinking, and it's a selfless way of thinking. That is part of where this all comes from. Is is this idea? of servant selling it's selflessness and and you might say okay so Rory obviously you talk about sales but w- where does selflessness enter into the conversation of anything that you've ever talked about before on the podcast well selflessness is one of the highest forms of self-discipline S- perhaps the highest form selflessness is one of the highest forms of self-discipline selflessness is an act of self-discipline to intentionally take on the perspective of another, to deliberately process things from a different point of view, to to uh, focus on evaluating things from another person's vantage point takes incredible self-discipline. And like I was saying, even if you don't believe in, you know, like, you know, even if you believe in sort of like, no matter what everybody should buy, okay, let's just say that you just go, I don't care. Like they should all buy no matter what. There's never a scenario where nobody should not ever buy. Okay. If that's you fine, even learning to do this will help you do better at that. I would contend and propose. And, and so it it makes you a better leader. It makes you a better parent. It makes you a better business partner. It makes you a better brother or sister, husband or wife, you know, is is to take on the perspective of other people. This is a part, an inherent part of moving people to action is is being able to do that. Something that we often use the phrase servant selling for. And you know, so 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 those are key things. And and that's what I, I want to encourage you and invite you to do is to consider things from their perspective. Because if you can do that, then you can lead them. If you can do that, then you can influence them. If you can do that, then you can sell to them. Well, that about wraps up the Action Catalyst podcast for this week. If you haven't yet, please log in to whatever your favorite medium is to listen to the show and both rate this podcast and leave a comment as that helps new prospective listeners determine if the show's really a good fit for them. If 
If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and screenshot this episode to share with your friends on social media. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst and subscribe to our video podcast on YouTube. Thanks for listening.